Uh, hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking to Hemant Bharatan Chakravarti. He's working as a consultant to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, while on a gap year from his bachelor's in economics and applied mathematics from Harvard. Previously, he worked as a research assistant to the chief economic advisor to the government of India. Uh, hi, Hemant. Nice to have you on the show. So, uh, Hi, Padimna. It's a pleasure. Yeah, could you tell us how you got to this point and why do you and why do you take the path you've taken till now? Sure. Uh, so when I was quite young, I knew that I wanted to do something along the lines of economics. But uh, in middle school, I read all these management textbooks and I thought the thing I wanted to do was uh, get into startups. Uh, and then as I got exposed to parliamentary debating as a high school student, I was also in the process exposed to academic economics, both because a lot of the people who were coming back to coaches were sort of, you know, corporate tax lawyers or, or uh, students of economics or economists. And so that introduced me a lot to the kinds of sets of resources and materials that one uh, needs to engage with to understand what academic economics is. And because uh, debating had some extent of required reading where you had to at least read the economists and if not read a couple nonfiction books and textbooks. So that all of that really pushed me towards a career in economics. And I had already been interested in politics and in sort of impact. So by the time I was applying to college, I already knew that I wanted a career in impact. I was going to study economics as a path to do that. Um, so once I got into college, I started off at JPAL uh, in the sense that my first summer, I worked for three months uh, in the Idea Lab, which is the JPAL's division that works on administrative data and doing more regular implementation research as opposed to RCD research. Uh, so I, I quite liked that. Uh, and then I, I did a couple other research gigs after that, including working as an RA for Heather Scofield, uh, where we worked with two other great labs, one called uh, the Good Business Lab, which is a labor economics lab in Bangalore, and uh, her behavioral development lab, which is a psychology and economics lab set in a uh, sort of development setting in Chennai. So in this process, I learned a lot about research, particularly development economics, uh, RCT-oriented research, and so on. So while I was in that kind of space, uh, I know that I'm, I'm still quite in a dilemma between uh, more academic economic research, or at least institutional economic research, and um, more direct hands-on roles in sort of government and policy. So two things I wanted to do uh, at the beginning of this year when I decided to take it off after uh, COVID happened and Harvard went online, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is that first I wanted to work on an economic survey because that's sort of the, I, would, I won't call it necessarily, a, a, it is a macroeconomic document, but it's also in many ways a microeconomic document. And it is a sort of flagship document, which is what interested me. Uh, so I was in touch with the uh, chief economic advisor, and luckily, uh, he just lost his RA who had left uh, to join the IAS. So I replaced her, um, after which uh, I, I, I really wanted to have spend some time at the Gates Foundation, uh, because for one, I sort of already had the sense that they were the set of individuals with the greatest sort of informal or, uh, or, or you know, connected influence in government in the sense that, that there would be some informal reliance on them for opinions. And I think my time there has confirmed this partially in the sense that whenever, you know, Niti is trying to put forward a document, for instance, I've seen them send about a list of questions to a bunch of uh, top think tanks and Gates is always a very important institution in this list. Uh, so that's quite uh, interesting to see how that uh, exchanges happen and how, what the product of that is, how much they're willing to keep and what they're willing to throw away. And I also, you know, obviously wanted to spend time at an institution which has lots of funding, which means that it's a really powerful job in the sense that the kinds of uh, evaluation or research you do are very likely to very quickly translate into action, or at least, you know, even the evangelizing I do is a still evangelizing that the institution is very seriously committed to Particularly, I work under the uh, deputy director, uh, who's a, the head of public policy and finance. He's a retired bureaucrat, a very uh, incredible uh, uh, man by the name of Santosh Matthew. And so I think really what I've enjoyed from this process is just observing the political economy of development and, you know, seeing who asks who what, what is the product of that uh, how does internal consensus building work? Once you have internal consensus, how does external consensus building work? And so on and so forth. 
So I think yeah, that's sort of my broad intellectual as well as uh, physical journey in the sense that started off with a very uh, strong interest in economics and impacts, then dived into RCT economics, and then had a sort of uh, disillusionment, not necessarily a disillusionment, but a sort of a moment of hesitation to, uh, and now I'm working on sort of broadening my frame of mind, uh, think more about uh, political economy. Uh, I, I was already interested in behavior, but also to think more specifically about uh, the politics of implementation and, and schemes and government programming and those kinds of things, and to try to find uh, policies that are better than sort of RCT best buys, but rather sort of policies that are likely to greatly excite uh, stakeholders. You mentioned you were in high school debate, and I've always noticed that everyone who goes into high school debate ends up with an adversarial um, frame of mind when they even debate on minor policy issues, especially because the format, desi it, the design, the, the incentives of the format are such that you are incentivized to pick on your, your opponent's weakest points and get, po and get marks for what uh, scholars would call engaging with their points. How do you think that the high school debate framework helps or, or hurts you as you go on to college and work? Yeah, so... Funny story about this is two days ago, uh, so I, I'm currently completely retired from debating, but uh, a lot of uh, people who run these sort of club-like things asked me to give lectures. So there's these bunch of uh, high school students, I think, who are running this online debate club in Lucknow, and they asked me to give me a lecture. So I give them a lecture. It's a long session. At the end of it, they open up to any uh, thoughts or comments. Presumably, it was just the organizers coaxing someone to unmute and say thanks. But this... Uh, very uh, enthusiastic kid unmutes and uh, they ask me, uh, so one problem I found is that as a debater, I'm not able to stop debating and I keep debating with friends and family and it, <laughs> it, it annoys them a lot. What do you do about this? And I was like, I wish I knew. I wish I knew, buddy. Uh, but yeah, uh, to answer that a bit more seriously, I, I think one thing I'll disagree with is that uh, I think good formats in parliamentary debating, the quote unquote, all the prestigious ones, do encourage uh, engaging with the better version of your opponent's point. So there's some, definitely some element of sort of what uh, Scott Alexander would call steel manning that is embedded in debate culture. But it's definitely true that uh, debating and particularly spending time in debating produces very adversarial uh, forms of thought and discussion. Uh, I think the big part of it is just you spend a disproportionate amount of time with uh, friends who are also debaters. And as a result, you're always uh, arguing about things with each other. So you sort of, it becomes the expectation that any form of discussion online or in person has to mirror that. I think uh, as I've retired out of debating, I, I haven't debated competitively since 2019. So I think in those two years, I've sort of gotten a bit more laid back. It is definitely, I think, a problem I think debating is trying to sort of extract that one element of discourse and really uh, put it together in a compact form and take it to its maximum in the sense in the ad adversarial sense. Uh, but really in the in, in real world political conversations, you want to, uh, you know, concede a lot more, uh, acknowledge a lot more, ignore a lot more and so on and so forth. So I think, yeah, th th those tricks you end up learning when you... Um, go to the job market or, or as a college student and befriend, you know, new people who are not debaters and you, you have to sort of uh, unlearn a bit, I think is, is my answer. Well, that's, a, that's a fair point. I've seen that with myself too at times. Uh, do you think randomized, do you think more governments should put randomized control trials as, the, as their first pilot program? As in, if the government of uh, Uttar Pradesh said, okay, we're going to try this thing with free laptops, uh, should they have first done an RCT, a, a randomized control trial, and then done it? Or should more, or, or should or should we give up on the experimental phase and go directly to announcing and, and implementing policies? I think, uh, I, I'll start with the second question. I, I think it's always quite important to pilot uh, policies. Uh, and more than for the uh, purpose of, uh, e even if it's not particularly complex to build the implementation research to uh, uh, scale the policy at population scale, I think the crucial role that piloting policy, especially in a you know, context like a state government in India has, is that it builds confidence for the politicians to go public with it. So if they can observe in you know two, three districts a particular intervention, especially more 
radical or bolder interventions that are not easily you know if it's just something regular like you know expanding a particular set of facilities or investing more in an existing program that's something that they would be quite willing to do but if you're trying to do something big something uh, new then i think a pilot is quite important so for instance at the gates foundation right now i'm working on a, a digital orchestration health intervention uh, where we're trying to arrange health service delivery through an application and a call center just so that you can do all the logistics of you know booking the home delivery or getting an appointment screening for symptoms through the, te- uh, the telephone uh, and in the process the government gets a rich amount of data be it about uh, public facilities about disease surveillance and so on and so forth uh, so it's essentially a way to get uh, observability from emits uh, over the health system and to see what is happening where and, and you know who where the failures in supply chains are happening where drug supplies are not reaching etc etc now the problem with implementing this kind of an intervention is that a it's going to redirect money from existing uh, interventions even if it's sort of this one is sort of a more public finance optimizing one but any sort of new intervention is going to redirect money and b it's going to for it to succeed it's going to mean electoral commitment which means that politicians have to go and they have to announce this as a part of their campaign and uh, they have to then follow through with the financial and administrative resources administrative resources meaning that they have to give you the better ias officers and not keep changing the person who's posted for you finances meaning they have to give you the money so for all of this i think piloting is very important uh, or having some kind of uh, evidentiary uh, you know framework is important i think the other thing that can substitute piloting quite well is if some other state has tried it then it's i think quite easy to export policies from one state to another state and this happens a lot in india uh but regarding whether rct should be the first um and should be the universal norm for piloting i think uh it i really don't think a that it should be any universal norm uh and i think the main reason for this is uh one of the big impediments i think for rct research when it scales up is that it actually ends up not being the most successful a uh, way to measure what a policy will look like at scale because you have um, either an uh, enumerators and the principal investigators directly uh, monitoring and administering the scheme or you have them at least monitoring the administrators of the scheme in the sense that even if they're not you know even if they're supposed to passively just record uh, data or whatever the very presence of these folks the very presence of an uh, you know a, a, a questionnaire or an enumerator at at the site uh, of a program delivery creates that kind of uh, visibility and you know supervision that will i think tangibly change the effects of what the average treat, uh, will tangibly change what the average treatment effect will be which is why i think uh, for instance uh, take the rcts on performance based pay for teachers there's a whole bunch of them starting from uh, glev at all in the 2010s that starts out with a little bit more negative results in the sense that they're like when they see it you know particularly when those rcts are administered by uh, external ngos or by the government itself and of an often found result is that it encourages a lot of teaching to the test a lot of pushing rote learning actually hurts as a result sort of student learning outcomes even if you know test scores can marginally improve or whatever uh and then you know there's a bunch of these kathik muli that in papers is a paper in i think uh, if i'm not wrong tanzania um and all of these look get a lot of positive effects on things like teacher absenteeism uh things like teacher performance whether teachers have uh plans so on and so forth but at the end of all of this kartik murlidharan who runs a lot of these rcts uh, says in an interview that he would never despite the strong rct evidence he would never um tell a state government or a government that, uh, to implement performance based pay because of the fact that when you have to implement it at scale things like how the testing is conducted things like uh, you know how the pay is administered all of these go up to the government and he does not believe that uh, the the distortion from the sort of principal agent problem when government actors do this will be uh, small enough for the treatment effects to still persist which i think is a very important problem right in that when uh, the sort of big problem in india's uh, development right now is i think uh, state capacity in the sense that do the actors in the state uh, do its bureaucrats frontline workers agents etc have the uh, the skills and competencies the right intrinsic and extrinsic incentives 
and you know all the opportunities they need what my uh, sort of uh, boss at the gates foundation calls them means motives opportunities framework where whether they have the skills whether they have the you know correct upward mobility and career recognition and other career incentives and whether they have the policy funding technology and so on so if this is a crucial problem in pro- program implementation particularly when rcts are administered by ngos or with the supervision of the investigators i think there's a big difference in the sense that those state capacity problems don't translate in the results of the rct the second big problem with rcts is that they're quite expensive so you know the is this multi year rct that just ended in the state of tamil nadu and kathik uh, murlidharan is reportedly i don't know if this is perfectly correct this is what i gauged from the twitter response but it took 7 years and 7 million dollars apparently uh, on that rct and it's a powerful rct in that it has a very accurate measurement of uh, something quite simple in the sense that it's just if we hire one more uh, preschool teacher per anganwadi center in the icds program in india it says there are vastly positive effects now obviously you know the qualitative experience any bureaucrat or you know any general sort of vaguely uh, well established person with some understanding of the field and public policy in india would tell you that if you add more anganwadi workers or more ashas or more auxiliary nurse midwives in villages those are going to be good but this this is still a useful rct in that it has a cost effectiveness measure for it but i think that isn't worth the expenditure that it uh, entails because um you know 7 million dollars I, i i did the math and i think it was something like for 29000 you could they could have hired 29000 more uh, anganwadi teachers for a full year so that you know it's really hard to get state, many state governments to commit that kind of funding right this they've worked with the government of tamil nadu and they've gotten the funding but it's hard to commit so much funding to just the process of evaluation to having you know so many uh, surveyors work in so many towns and whatever i think the third and the sort of big problem in rcts is that besides maybe for one or two ias officers who might be quite interested in their uh, in going to conferences in presenting the research happening out of their area and you know maybe even find some upward mobility out of it there is very hard to find um, local political buy in from rct research not even for piloting a scheme even for you know just generic development of a scheme so for instance the most salient example that comes to my mind about this is uh, i was working in the chennai office of jpal my first summer and uh, i they gave me the project for the uh, tamil nadu ministry state ministry of welfare is now is is been has just established a women's helpline so they gave me the project of sort of doing the implementation research for them to develop it and doing the pre rct research essentially scoping that recording the data and then trying to figure out what questions an rct can answer with that data so that was a way for them to just funnel resources into this uh, women's helpline without already starting off an rct and the repeated experience i had there is that the greatest demand from the side of uh, the uh, local politics and administrators was always for implementation research they were just like why are you giving us this rct stuff this is not useful for us um, they re- really just wanted people to help them answer quite simple or complicated questions not complex ones things like uh, you know their call center for instance is a big problem of prank calls these uh, because it's a women's helpline it attracts this horde of jobless men who keep calling and harassing these uh, female call operators and it's actually quite problematic because uh, the call queuing system they had was a was a completely automatic system that queued calls based on the order in which it came so if if someone could you know keep calling and they could just keep jamming that system of queues and if they spent enough time on the phone then you just keep pushing the other calls out and you know they could ring uh, for the entire time and cut before the next call you know queues up so they literally what at one day missed this uh, emergency call from some woman who was uh, you know facing some serious domestic abuse at home and uh, reporting uh, to get you know just literally to get uh, immediate emergency support and that call kept getting queued for these folks because these known nuisance callers kept calling them so now they have this very simple question of what are the things if you're going to buy new call technology 
what are the things that these this new call technology should have and you tell me even for data recording and stuff how should i integrate this call technology into a crm which is their data entry setup and they have other simple questions like right now we have an excel document where we're typing up the details of the call that's causing a lot of error and then we're just saving these in pen drives and you know sharing it over email and so how do time. we have yeah so how do we reduce administrative burden while improving the data quality and rcts are not very useful for answering these kinds of you know adaptive implementation research style questions right mm-hmm. which is why i think even in public health the focus is at least i seem to think that it's it's shifting from really thinking about big diagnoses of you know this is a big problem and this is the kind of training effort or whatever we need to doing more embedded programs what i think we need is embedded research uh, in uh, programs where if we're piloting a program you just sit there with this people who are supervising it you help them build a data system and then you just keep adaptively improvising that pilot uh, based on whatever inputs you're getting from you know field operators from looking at the data and so on and then you arrive at a policy design that you can scale and i think this is likely to be for most policies the uh, most useful thing except in contexts where the uh, setting itself is ripe for a good rct and there's funding coming from elsewhere then i think an rct is helpful in the sense that it can pay for the pilot as well uh, so even if the government is not willing to pilot it they could be inspired to see the success of the program by an rct stepping in or if a government is hesitant it could be useful but i think as a universal norm the, i think what, in my limited experience what would be the best thing is if there was some kind of an embedded research cell where you take some top uh, economists couple of grad students and you put them there and if the bihar government or the up government is announcing say a new laptop delivery scheme you help them set up a good administrative data setup for it right from scratch uh, so they entering it they have good data and then you do regular back checks you do a lot of field visits a lot of this conversations with field operators and you arrive at a set of uh, inputs that can help you operationalize it for population scale so really the goal of a pilot i think would should we what how do we perfect uh, the operationalization of this or cr- get closer to that so that we can scale it up and second how do we in this process show that in these limited geographies this program has been quite successful and how can we convincingly capture this so that politicians have the confidence to scale it up and i think we can get to this in a different question but uh, really the political economy of what is campaigned over has a very direct and proportional relationship with state capacity and and with program delivery and investment in india but okay, yeah, how I, does I, that I, happen yeah, wait, no, no. Yeah, explain yeah. more how does that happen because i always seen politician campaigners okay we say some stuff and what what is going to end up happening is dependent to some extent on what they campaign on but a, but to a large extent on on external constraints and internal um, donor funding or or uh, interest groups so how do, so what's the answer to that does it actually happen so that those are definitely all the various constraints on politics so mm-hmm. i don't think it happens as a general principle in that everything that politicians campaign for is everything that is implemented well i think it happens for their flagship schemes mm-hmm. so there's a few salient examples that come to mind so the first thing is my uh, so my current boss's uh, thesis in in, in his, for his phd is something quite interesting which is looking at bihar under uh, uh, yadav and essentially looking at how the destruction of state capacity happened and a great example for that is the cooperative societies in bihar which which are you know centrally uh, uh, not centrally but state government administered um, so what happens is that uh, yadav attacks all the uh, uh, cooperative societies and you know he reshuffles their leadership he diverts administrative and financial resources away from it in a direct bid to stifle them because all the cooperatives are dominated by members of the dominant castes and so uh, because he is mainly a yadav representative he's trying to deliver to yadav uh, sort of ideology and even if so even till here right you can see that it's sort of a counterproductive anti caste framework in the sense that it's also pushing down uh, the yield from uh, people who might have you know accumulated those resources however but those resources exist and those are not being fully utilized but the particularly stark part of that example is that even though he is a leader so even if, even if he is a leader in terms of an anti caste movement what we particularly see is that 
he doesn't touch the milk cooperatives the milk cooperatives actually do better under his uh, reign and that's because the yadavs are a, are a uh, traditionally um, uh, a sort of cattle rearing and and you know milk producing caste so the milk cooperatives are heavily owned by the yadav community so you can see how is a very certain clientelism where even when there is a politician of a oppressed community it often ends up being you know yadav versus non yadav obc is becoming a matter of politics or in my state of tamil nadu you know the uh, there's a strong political cleavage for the one year community which is sort of a uh, obc community but they you know in turn have extreme political uh, you know often violence uh, against the dalits of tamil nadu and so on so there's definitely all these clientelism but i think what happens is that it is what politicians find salient at that point of time that creates or destroys political uh, that cre- this creates or destroys state capacity so the yadav example is a good example of this but the two big case studies for this but before that the explanation for this is that essentially when they commit to something Uh, to a particular uh, you know big scheme for instance you know P, uh, pm modi is aishman bharat health insurance scheme then they are forced to pour in all their resources because it becomes something that's tangible and voters can hold them accountable for it and i think overall as well the picture of politics in india is slowly growing with you know india becoming a more mature democracy obviously it's a back and forth i won't say right now is the most sectarian politics we've had historically but it's i, I think india keeps going up and down up and down like it's, it's a it's still in many ways a nascent democracy and it's growing in all of those ways two step forward I think, one step backward exactly 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 but i think overall the level of development politics does keep improving in the sense that whatever sectarian politics or corruption or whatever else whatever government does that is some year on year improvement in program delivery to the previous year there's some year on year improvement in state capacity and as a result there's year on year improvements in literacy in a med, uh, in the rising middle class and upward mobility and so on so i think all of that is changing our politics to create some optimism as well that especially at the level of local and state governments can translate into development outcomes now what are these two big case studies right I, this is something that i've been recently working on as well uh, to inspire a lot of our thought in uh, public policy and finance but the first one is the case of electricity in bihar So Bihar has had one of the most struggling discoms that is electricity utility generation boards uh, for quite a while. Now Nitish Kumar has been the chief minister for three terms till you know the early 2010s. It is an absolute terrible state. Uh, the state is not ele- well electrified at all. Uh, there's a huge deficit uh, in power generated. There's a huge deficit between uh, demand for power and connections given out. Lo- uh, I the exact numbers slip me but essentially a big big uh, chunk of the state does not have power connections now nitish kumar starts a couple of reforms in his first term there's a you know some restructuring blah 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 all of that does good makes good improvements in you know these indicators technical losses in transmission are cut down a little uh, access improves infrastructure improves a little but all of these are marginal improvements they they do change the rate of progress from the previous two uh, terms but they still marginal the real turning point comes in the mid uh, 2010s i think 2015 or 16 whichever year there's elections happening and for those state elections i think it was in his independence day speech nitish kumar declares to the people of bihar if you do not have an electricity connection at your home don't vote for me and that makes a tangible change in the uh graph of electricity to the extent where three months ahead of their commitment to the national saubhagya scheme that comes later they declare bihar as universally electrified now there's still contention over whether you know those numbers are fudged a bit whether the real rate is around 81% or 80% but all of those are still you know radical changes um, there's been you know hundreds of crores invested in various verticals uh technical losses from transmission etc have been cut down significantly demand is down power supply is higher uh, you know the quality of power supply which is you know hours supplied per day besides the number of households supplied to all of these have seen radical radical transformations that's one example of when when there's a salient political commitment or when there's a close association with image uh there's a very good scheme delivery and this happens for the smaller schemes as well which are you know the photo schemes which is 
so you know where you get some physical good with the big chief minister and party logo on uh, on on the thing so you know be it the ksr child care kits in uh, in telangana or you know the chief mantri uh, mukhyamantri uh, balika yojana i think in bihar which distributes cycles to girl students uh, all of those are very quickly and very easily done because these are great photo ops and great you know ways to directly reach voters uh, and then the other big example is in uh, in telangana with this thing called mission bagireda so telangana has an endemic of fluorosis which is that in there is this district called i think nalconda i don't know if i'm pronouncing it right um, and in that district uh, there is a high quality quantity of fluoride in the water uh, as a result of which there's i think right now even after all of this development victories that i'm going to tell you happening there's 1 lakh active cases of people uh, with fluorosis so in this setting of an endemic of fluorosis what happens is uh, a big sort of um, political commitment for the ksr government becomes just before the elections becomes uh, or or two years before the elections or whatever i don't have the timeline exactly correct in my head but becomes this project called mission bagireda which is once again before just like how bihar started its electricity reforms even before there was a central electricity scheme called the saubhagya scheme this government starts this drinking water mission as a co- to combat this fluorosis endemic even before there's this thing called jal jeevan mission which is you know trying to put uh, which modi says will give from every tap the every household will have a tap from every tap there will be water that's their slogan but even before that they start this thing called mission bagireda and they basically there's such a big political commitment there's a radical change in things like drinking water connections supply of drinking water so on and so forth to the point where um, at, at at the point at which they start i think in 2016 or 2017 the who says there should be something like i think uh, 0.1 mg of uh, fluoride is the maximum that can be in drinking water and uh, nalgonda district has 10 to 15 mg or something like that so from that point they've now sort of you know started completely eliminating new flor- uh, fluorosis cases because of how uh, quickly they're drinking water capacity has been transformed so i think yeah when whenever our politics uh even it could even come from you know some kind of development leaning populism but i think whenever politics uh commits to tangibles especially you know these kinds of easy tangibles like if you don't have a power connection don't vote for me or if you're you should have a tap your tap should have drinking water these kinds of slogans i think can drive development victories and of course in the southern states mm-hmm. You yeah, so in the southern states it's a, yeah you know i was just going to complete that in the southern states it's a even bigger story where with the background of anti caste politics there's a larger political identity of dravidianism so the cleavages are less powerful uh, for instance in my state of tamil nadu probably the two big cleavages are um, the obc caste of one years uh, who have a, a party that tries to represent them called the pmk and there's the uh, dominant landed obc castes a uh, couple of many sub castes grouped together which is called the mukulator uh, who are also you know dominant in the in western, western tamil nadu particularly and they have they're very well represented in the uh, admk which is uh, jalalitas party which is not in power right now so despite these political uh, clientelist opportunities existing as a result of a larger extraordinarily strong non brahmin movement and you know that uh dravidian identity and tamil identity being very strong i think still the chief nationalism that parties have ended up competing for is that collective identity or that new collective identity even though that's you know interestingly and quite uh funnily for me at least uh, perhaps not for the brahmins uh, built upon a non brahmin the point the, the point of collectivization is exclusion in the sense that they're all collectivizing under an exclusion of the uh, brahmins but it's a phenomenal movement as a result in the sense that it does a lot of the things that many other states have struggled to do which is forming a unified uh, representation of dalits and you know uh, downtrodden obcs uh, preventing there is still obviously conflict between obcs and obcs and dalits in tamil nadu but it's far less politically represented than it is in a state like uttar pradesh or bihar in the sense that all our obcs and all our uh, you know many of our dalit votes go to the same people and as a result they they all act under a as sort of that anti caste uh, 
consciousness allows us to have this salient different nationalism which then allows development victories to pour in which is why i think even though there's a lot of populist sort of what the uh, sort of quote unquote indian national media will call freebie politics i think the sort of our we've been doing our own version of uh, uh basically of 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 quantitative easing where we just give people things <laughs> so that they don't have to pay for them uh and we've been doing that quite successfully right we've given away mixies uh tvs um better we started them it comes from the political history of you know obviously being the state that starts off with the justice party under the british and having all these extreme commitments towards development policy and you know starting the midday meal for instance in tamil nadu but that keeps carrying through in the sense it's a very keynesian politics of keep giving the people things and and i think that's that comes from the fact that as clientelist identities become less salient and there's this different form of na- uh, collective identity development victories become possible which is what you know you know in a very evil way the bjp also is trying to do in that when they try to invent this sort of new brahmanicized hinduism which is sort of universalized as all hindus we are going to invent this sort of concoction of practices that is now declared the universal religion what that's trying to do is to create a hindu vote in the sense that it's trying to collectivize the hindus of different castes into the same anti muslim politics as a result of which they will then be able to constitute a very strong and irreversible majority and that mm-hmm. was the allure for all of these uh, people including a prominent intellectuals like you know pratap banumeta or even right now you know prominent philanthropists in india like nandan nilakeni continue to work with the modi government because they see they think this political mandate will translate into development victories i think in retrospect it hasn't uh, but that's another thing to keep in mind in that when you can create these new revisionist identities you get a higher mandate the question is only then what you are driven to do obviously when you create a sort of hindu revivalist identity you are driven to do more hindu nationalistic things whereas if you create a more sort of dravidian style uh, you know anti nationalist iconoclastic uh, you know revisionist unifying identity that, that form of a new nationalism produces quicker development victories okay but in the in between is the bihar and the telangana cases okay uh, your points of where people commit to uh, certain schemes that seems right to me but what about non salient uh, reforms like for example if we talked about changing the legal system or uh, so maybe politically unpopular farmer um, agriculture reforms or reducing the strength of uh, worker protection laws so i mean do politicians get rewarded for that too and you work in in a place where you probably evangelize for things that aren't as easily um you know claim you can easily claim a claim in an election that led to good so how does that what's the political economy of those sort of policies yeah so there's two things to note here first is some reforms that are unpopular in india are uniquely very stickily unpopular um so for instance uh, an example of an unpopular reform might be hiring contract teachers uh to teach uh you know uh students by just you know getting 12th grade pass outs and making them apprentices uh that would be in general an unpopular reform in any country because teachers unions would not like it but in india you would be it would be impossible for you to do it because uh there would be constitutional yeah, uh provisions and sort of uh you know supreme court precedent that will tell you that uh that will have certain you know uh, requirements for formalization of work requirements anti gig economy requirements in teaching or whatever and we have a very heavy history of public service disputes uh um uh, forget what the word is for uh, cases essentially uh as a result of which you know those so i'm saying there's many kinds of reforms that are even out of the picture because there is often judicial president or you know constitutional provision saying that those kinds of things cannot happen <coughs> similarly one second <coughs> similarly there are constitutional protections or or provisions for uh the kinds of responsibility that ias officers have as well as for uh, what you can and cannot do with the ias so some kinds of administrative reforms wouldn't just be unpopular they would be quite tangibly impossible as a result of that so i think that's one other thing to keep in mind in that one way in which the heavy influence of the state sticks out in india is that we've often had very basic 
provisions to prevent these kinds of reforms in the first place. The second thing is, yeah, I don't think politicians can pull off unpopular reforms, uh, particularly in normal times. I think in the moments of crisis, it's possible to do that. For instance, you know, in Uttar Pradesh, for instance, when uh, Yogi Adityanath uh, surprisingly having development policies uh, reversed uh, labor loss as, as a result of the pandemic, uh, that was, I think, a unique window of uh, opportunity to do something like that. Uh, not that I think all states need to do that, but I think probably in a state like Uttar Pradesh, that is extraordinarily uh, having difficult times, uh, it could be quite useful. So I think it is very hard to do unpopular and bold reforms in India outside of moments of crisis. And that's not particularly different from uh, the experience of other countries either. Uh, you know, all the health financing reforms that used to face big backlash came out of uh, the Bud crisis and the Asian financial crisis in places like Indonesia, for instance. Uh, so I think, yes, in, in, in moments of crisis, we've been good at doing reforms. Otherwise, I think it's hard to do reforms. And I, I don't think our labor laws are particularly overbearing. I think one big problem with them is that they're not simplified. But I just would not propose that reform because I think it's quite hard to accomplish politically, especially because it's hard to explain the nuance between simplification and doing away with uh, certain labor protections. And it's often true that there is there are probably places where that nuance does not exist. Um, so, yeah, I think... Uh, Maybe there's some kinds of unpopular reforms that we should have. Uh, so for instance, maybe these, some of these, I think the majority of this current farm reform bill is probably good, uh, but it ends up being extremely unpopular. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it is a difficult reform context. Uh, and I think it is telling that uh, a government with this kind of mandate could not pull off the farm reforms, but I think that's also because they perhaps touched uh, the most powerful uh, uh, or one of the most powerful uh, yeah, interest groups in India, not just in a generic sense in that many of these folks are big landlord farmers from Punjab and Haryana who have enough uh, you know, resources to put together a strong display of protest, but also that they are an interest group in the sort of Indian imagination where there is this sort of Gandhian imagination of the village and, and agriculture and the farmer as as a savior and as, you know, there is, I think, the some amount of disillusionment with globalization and, and rapid urbanization in India, which means that there's always that allure of romanticism for the farmer. So my, my grandmother, for instance, just who has absolutely no interest in national politics, she's only ever followed, she follows politics quite rapid, uh, uh, like quite on point, but it's completely state politics. She hasn't given a single damn as far as I know about national politics. Uh, but she has been mad since these farm reforms have come out because she thinks if our farmers have a problem with something, um, then that's something that's bad because farmers are valuable in, in, in this very romantic sense. And I think the problem also with many of these unpopular reforms is that, uh, particularly with these farm bills, for instance, is that they don't quite respond to the heart of the problem uh, in the sense that, for instance, the problem with farming right now is that land has become uh, so segmented and has lost its quality over the years of uh, abuse, for instance, for cash crop production, uh, which means that agriculture is becoming a fundamentally unproductive occupation. Now, by creating better marketing for them and doing away with the, you know, the rent-seeking tendencies of mandis, for instance, you are certainly boosting the efficiency of agriculture, at least in my opinion. But I think that does not still constitute the critical change that's required when you think about the debt traps, the farmer suicides, and so on. That is not something that changes the fundamental nature of agriculture. Now, this is still a very, very tricky uh, thing in India because you have to balance uh, the effects of economic, uh, the economic impacts of your policy with the socioeconomic and caste inequality impacts of your policy. So you can't just, you know, for instance, consolidate land and invest in it because you have to ensure that that consolidation won't be a literal reversal of land redistribution where we have taken from zamindar and zamindari castes and you know various forms of dominant landed castes and redistributed land to some success uh, to some extent of success so you have to also ensure that if you are going to consolidate land then that you don't just that, that 
doesn't just mean that you take away upward mobility from uh, the villagers and maybe one or two generations will break out with that lump sum uh, capital that comes from selling their land or whatever but you know the genuine way in which even in my village i've seen people make it out of the the terrible caste based labor that's given on them is that uh, is through some form of upward mobility where uh, for instance the person from the barber caste in my village is done made up some savings which allowed his son to go to school and he now has a barber shop uh, in a, in a town and as therefore in some way escaped uh, the social caste uh, the social impact of the caste system where his father was often never paid in cash and just given you know rice day to day he used to go around and collect rice from the village and he, he was called whenever someone needed a shave or a haircut or similarly you know a lot of farm hands who got small pieces of land or you know who were collectively able to work on pieces of land by renting them as tenants and as a result by saving year on year their children have now broken out and they have clerk jobs in the government office in chennai instead of living in the village or so on so i think those kinds of upward mobility interact very closely with bigger picture economic growth in that i think a lot of india's growth can be post 1991 can be explained by just new participants entering the picture of economics where people outside of the aristocratic uh, castes now just get capital and as a result you know beat from the development of uh, msmes particularly in a state like tamil nadu where small business has really disassociated from caste uh, i think those things have really driven growth in that it's just a lot of new entrants who been able to get education who had some social protection and financial protection for healthcare and as a result have broken out of whatever previous non participant or you know peasant participant status they had in the uh, thing so i think all of these influence what the unpopularity of reforms constitute so sometimes those are genuine concerns in the sense that i think economists right now are particularly bad at measuring how upward mobility and caste intersect so often the reason why we are not able to gauge the impact of uh uh policy that will deliver economic growth in the short term but perhaps undo things like redistribution for instance if we have big uh land and farm laws is that we're not able to, i think we're not we haven't gotten very good yet at measuring what the role of uh new upward mobility from people of different castes entering the market and becoming participants and developing skills has been um so i think in some cases like that those lobbies are genuine but of course you know our teachers unions are disproportionately powerful our farmers unions are disproportionately powerful uh there's a lot of cleavages that do back and forth politics uh and there's you know a lot of petty politics as well so one big salient example is in my city of chennai where uh, they built a big new uh parliament a, a very polished and you know shiny parliament quite like this central vista project and the next government the government changed and the new chief minister jalalta decided on a whim that she would not use this new parliament so she declared that it's going to become a government hospital overnight so it is entirely designed with all the conference rooms and the parliament rooms so my parents got vaccinated in this large assembly hall with posh seating and you know all these desks with those little uh, you know plug points and whatever for mics so it's the strange uh, nature of politics here right so yeah to answer your original question i think i am not very optimistic about making unpopular reforms in india but at the same time i think there's a lot of uh, politically low hanging fruit that we can pull off before we get to the question of uh, do we need big unpopular uh, reforms i do think there's one or two structural labor market and uh, land reforms that are needed uh, to change productivity in the country but besides those i think many of the liberalizing reforms can wait uh, for uh, you know our democracy to mature a bit more and we can work on in that meanwhile on just routine improvements in things like uh, regulation enforcement contract enforcement ease of doing business uh, state capacity government programming and so on i think those really should constitute our uh, first priorities okay now you've worked in a think tank and you've worked with the government in in, in a place that in a place that is close to 
to important policymakers. How would you design or how do you design a think tank if I give a blank sheet and I said, here you go, your objective is to maximize the impact you have on policymakers. What, what would that sort of structure look like? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people have figured out how to do this well. And uh, the sort of big takeaway for this for me would be to liaise us a lot more with uh, the people who have to uh, convert your funding into impact. So obviously, you know, in a lower capacity setting, um, like uh, Kenya, for instance, where uh, people are calling for give directly or, or, or Uganda, it's, it's very easy to then just, you know, do a give directly kind of thing or to, uh, you know, distribute bed nets, for instance. Those are obviously very uh, easy, low hanging fruit interventions that will have tremendous impacts. Uh, but, you know, when I think of a more complicated environment like India, where um, many states, uh, things are not that underdeveloped and there's actually a lot of regional inequality, I think the sort of big takeaway for me has been that uh, is, is what actually Lant Pritchett writes in a, and what I think was a little controversial uh, blog post, controversial in the sense that a lot of economists and RCT folks disagreed with it. But he writes that uh, policy uh, reform champions shouldn't just sell best buys. And he has this really obtuse, but uh, I thought adorable anecdote for this, where he's like, blah, blah, somewhere in New York, between some street and some other street, there's Carnegie Hall. Uh, and he named it uh, that because of uh, it was a pun on a, the on the um, mm -hmm. uh, Copenhagen uh, whatever that he had to do. I forget what the pun was. The consensus. But, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so he's like, if I see someone walking in between these streets on a Sunday, if I stop them and I tell them to go to Carnegie Hall, you should actually walk back a hundred meters and then whatever, take a left, go down east for blah blah. And if you take a right, it'll be there. And if I do that, would you consider it advice? And he says, I wouldn't consider it advice because that's conditional advice. Conditional in the sense that you assume that that person wants to go to Carnegie Hall. And then you consider yourself the, you know, the, this great white man with all this knowledge and information that this person doesn't have and you go and volunteer that. And you try to convince them to do those things. But really that's not going to succeed because if especially in the real world, where the overwhelming majority of existing evidence must help you update your uh, prior and achieve a posterior that says that perhaps this person is indeed not going to Carnegie Hall. And I think what all of this is a metaphor for is essentially to say that uh, we need to find, I, I, one thing I don't like in the development sector is often people considering uh, politics and funding as constraints uh, that need to be optimized around rather than as something that's endogenous. And what I mean by that is, I think if you pitch uh, development programs, even if you want to stay blah, 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 routine improvements that are going to create distributed improvements in maternal mortality and infant mortality, if you sell those exclusively as those, it becomes difficult to achieve them because you don't get the administration and the funding required for it because politicians can't uh, convert those to votes. It becomes too widespread and too non-tangible for them to uh, really back you. Whereas, that's why all these case studies come in, is that if you give them, uh, if you pre prepare a pivot for them, that creates a tangible deliverable, which can then, you know, uh, in the back end of which you can do all the hundred things you want to do, I think that's the better way to structure uh, policy proposals and, uh, and, and, you know, projects because that they makes the so-called constraints a bit endogenous and you can actually influence how much funding is devoted, who the bureaucrat assigned is, how much the politician is um, invested in backing you uh, and so on and so forth. Because the, the, the problem in India is not that we don't have the right programs or the right verticals. It's that when you have to do nuanced implementation in a multi-year framework, it becomes too hard to do that because we don't have the visibility, the observability, the, the, you know, the nerve systems in place to be able to orchestrate what we're trying to do well. So what we end up doing is uh, losing track somewhere of who is doing what, where, and there's just too many stakeholders across a complicated administrative setup, which means implementation is really where we fall short. So if you want to, especially if, you know, if you're working with a government stakeholder, I think the thing that I would do differently 
is to design these grants that go to government such that they can even if i'm trying to do x y and z things i would design it embedded under a bigger different pivot that would allow them to proclaim these development victories and in that process get the funding and administration required to do all the 99 things that we want to do as economists so i think really diverting from just giving the most cost effective one two three best buys to trying to package those best buys into a politically viable financially viable administratively feasible setup is what i do differently assuming i work with the government otherwise you know i think people have broadly figured out how to do impact maximization last question to you is you've worked on a on what what someone would call micro policy small things like healthcare or um, grain distribution for example do you think more economists should be big picture thinkers like milton friedman or uh, friedrich hayek or 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 even stephanie kelton versus should they work on small issues like kartik uh, kartik balitan or um abhijit banerjee mm-hmm. so i mean i i think i'm biased in this question because uh i i find uh, macro a bit boring so i mm-hmm. i i enjoy micro much more uh but i think uh yeah when i took uh the whatever um, macroeconomics undergraduate sequence at harvard uh i think it was uh, gabriel shodoroy reach that was teaching that class get two instructors and and he was one of them and uh, he says uh yeah uh, macroeconomics is a uh, is a novel science uh, we had just started figuring out what things we know are definitely wrong and in the we are in the process of figuring out what things we know are perhaps wrong maybe at some point we'll get to the point where we figure out what things we know are right uh and that then reminds me of something uh which apparently manki once said which is uh, to his macro class he said uh, you are naively confused and i am profoundly confused uh, <laughs> so uh yeah i th- i do think there's a lot of work uh to thinking about microeconomics uh because i think what ends up happening and uh you know this is again heavily biased by what i know best which is the context of the state of tamil nadu is that when you create social protection and financial protection such that people can become participants in the economy it becomes extremely sort of uh self propelling from there on in that things like designing market and so on respond very quickly to private incentives so even without the heavy role of a state there or a heavy role of a planner those things are better achieved so that's why i think in india for instance the private sector is doing very well and my optimism in india comes from the future of the private sector for in terms of economic prospects but i think the role of a planner in assuring that is basically creating uh, the upward mobility required for more and more people to do that so that the size just keeps growing and i think in india because we have a still a largely untapped economy and a unsaturated economy we still have great returns to achieve from just increasing the size of the number of people doing and the number of things that are being done that said yeah i think one thing that we do need a resurgence in is big picture thinking along the lines of you know uh, that we we, we were, that it's just i think there's a more recent phenomena that we haven't had uh, things like development economists thinking about growth being a salient thing or uh, you know as branko milanovic was complaining after the nobel prize that people aren't asking big questions like that we still haven't answered the russia and china questions and whatever else uh, and that we should try, still try to answer those questions and i think there's definitely a lot of truth to that um, i think what the reason why microeconomic policy excites me a lot is because that is a, it is the most easiest and quickest to translate into action so as someone who's interested in impact uh, i it's very in, enticing for me because there is great demand for uh, microeconomic thinkers across developing governments where there is a lot of demand for implementation research a lot of demand for policy advice and then so on and so forth so i think it's very satisfying uh, uh, as a field but of course i think right now we have we perhaps well crossed the saturation point where we thinking about things that are quite likely less important than asking big picture questions um so i definitely think we need to go back to asking the even more sort of classical questions in economics and you know pushing 
whatever Keynesian idea of the economist being a historian and a philosopher and a political scientist and all of those things and asking about structures and setups and paths to development and paths to growth and then, you know, social choice and public choice and how all of those things happen. I think those are definitely, uh, you know, when even when as students of economics, right, when we leave the classroom, the ideas from our economics class that always impact us the most are not these are never actually these individual papers about which intervention works out where or who microfinance is actually helping out, but always the, you know, big picture, you know, frames of thought like, you know, okay, how do we evaluate a policy? Okay, we think about uh, constraint optimization, we think about distortion, we think about externalities, we think about uh, distributive effects and, and, and regressive nature, uh, whether the tax is regressive or whatever, uh, or what is the path to growth, what was the role of a, you know, as we were talking about recently, you know, in China, for instance, I am quite interested in understanding what the role of federalism and the incentive structures it creates are were in China, because I think those are definitely examples of things that are not even difficult to achieve, right? Like the reason why I think people are a bit hesitant with sort of macro big picture thinking is that that always ends up being a practice of thought and very difficult to translate to action because governments have to do a sort of big shifts and big policy changes to, if you say, you know, for instance, that even if we can identify a solid path to growth for a country, those, it, that would entail maybe say trade reforms, um, quota reforms, tariff reforms, uh, uh, labor law reforms, land law reforms, construction reforms. Those are all much stickier to do than to engineer state capacity, engineer better policy administration and so on. Which is why I think there's a sort of fallout in those kinds of questions being asked, as well as, you know, the, I think one of the biggest problems in economics is uh, what the top, the, the sort of top five journal and the race to the bottom that it creates in the sense that I've myself heard from many assistant professors, how much pressure they're under and are not able to ask the research questions that they're most interested in because they have to think about how whether a top five will publish it and how that will affect the tenure track and so on. I think those these kinds of career incentives have hurt economics in that it's uh, made it move away from sort of difficult to answer big questions that make for good analytical pieces, but you know remain open questions. It's made it harder to engage in things like public writing. Uh, it's made writing, say, a nonfiction book or writing for with the public in mind in say writing op-ed pieces or long articles, it's made that completely, uh, completely remote any incentives to do something like that. So I think the career incentives in academic economics, particularly in the West right now, really heavily reflect why this kind of big picture thought is going away in the sense that there are rewards for finding very solidly this that this very narrow thing is true, but there aren't rewards for just dealing with larger public thought and ideology in the way in which economists historically have dealt with. I think Are you really surprised that incentives work here? <laughs> yeah, no. It is, it is truly, truly laughable how hypocritical and you know non-self-conscious the academic economics discipline yes. in the US is. Like, you, you just have to take a couple of game theory papers and a couple of other like basic economics papers and be like, you realize <laughs> that you are all doing this exact same thing, right? Like, you yeah. are just a bunch of folks who are chasing occupational licensing your entire life <laughs> in, in, in a perennial risk of uh, But yeah, I, I definitely do think that, uh, and I think some people are doing it quite well once they, but the problem is that you have to A, already make it to then be able to expend your resources on that kind of uh, research. And one and, and you know Arvind Subramanian and his co-authors like Josh Feldman or Devesh Kapoor actually end up doing a lot of this. Like Arvind Subramanian writes a lot about big picture questions like how should we approach India's debt uh, or you know uh, secular stagnation or all, all of these you know <laughs> big picture things. But it's very unfortunate that only the old people who have already made it and now have very little to lose have the you know scope to write a Financial Times article about something like that or whatever. I think definitely. The action, the sort of path of action for me to change that is to uh, work on. I really think incentives in economics need to change, and I think people like uh, you know Alex Tabarrok and Tyler Coven, you know Shruti Rajakopal, like also quite adore, uh, who do uh, 
who you know care less about that kind of a a, a uh, status based race and are much more invested in public thought and you know just larger discourse and advice and consultancy actually do uh, the profession a great favor because they really change uh, what the models for surviving in the profession are so i think we definitely need more people like them uh, who can just do think tankery and, and think about big questions and write open ended papers that don't necessarily answer all those questions you know leaving room for further discussion and so on okay so it's been great talking with you mostly because you have a wide array of examples which saves me the trouble of thinking of new questions so uh, thank you so much uh, it is it's been a pleasure it was wonderful talking to you okay, thank you